you for joining us at the bar for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceras from Independent Women's Law Center, and I'm joined by my colleague, Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum. And today we're going to be talking with Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason, host of Rising on Hill TV. Um, Robbie's the author of two books, Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook in the Future, and Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. But um, what we wanted to talk to him today uh, about today is his excellent reporting, setting the record straight in two infamous cases of media malpractice, right? We have uh, the 2014 Rolling Stone hoax article about sexual assault on the University of Virginia campus, um, and then the 2019 incident involving Catholic high school students at the Lincoln Memorial. But more generally, he writes a lot about issues of due process and civil liberties. So we thought he was the perfect person uh, to talk with us at the bar today. So Robbie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, so we, you know, we were just discussing this off air, but, um, you know, the Title IX regs that uh, recently closed their comment period, um, they contained so many sweeping changes to American law. And we've spent a lot of time, I feel like, on this show and elsewhere talking about the fact that they are redefining sex um, and, and potentially flipping around the language to essentially make this statute from 1972 say the exact opposite with regard to sex discrimination and protecting women and girls as it was intended. Um, but because of all of that fur, um, there hasn't been as much focus on what I think absent all of that, um, that radical change would be the center of the conversation around Title IX, and, th and that is due process issues on campus. So, um, you know, uh, I, I just hope that you can come in on and talk to us about what you think these changes are going to bring us back to. You know, you did a lot of reporting on the early part um, of, of this sort of due process on campus. The Trump administration came in, established some very minimal due process safeguards. Then we had a pandemic and all the, the colleges and universities did, were essentially unpeopled um, in key part for this, this issue. Uh, there weren't a lot of, of uh, you know, late night parties on, on campuses that tend to spin off these kinds of sexual assault issues. Um, and now people are back on campus and we have this new set of Title IX regulations. So what are the changes that are made from the previous changes and, and what do you worry about with this new set of Title IX regs? Yeah, frankly, I think they're horrifying. They're very dangerous. And I, I'm, I try not to be prone to hyperbole in general in like political commentary. It is quite bad. It's extremely bad. Uh, it, it's going back to a lot of what we saw prior to the Trump administration under uh, President Obama, which was the kind of genesis of these new threats to due process on campus when the uh, Obama administration released guidance in, I think it was 2011, on how colleges and universities should adjudicate sexual misconduct and sexual assault accusations, moving them, it, it moved them, it, again, and actually not under actual rulemaking, just under guidance. They essentially wrote letters to colleges and universities and said, we think you should do it like this. Feel free to disagree and you know go your own way if you want. Maybe your federal funding is in jeopardy if you do that. Who knows? Let's find out if you really want to. Of course, no institution actually wanted to do that. So they, they really fell in line with what were some quite bad policies. And then the Trump administration came in, went through the formal rulemaking process to, to codify a set of principles more in accordance with just basic, basic kind of presumptions of innocence, like just very basic standards of, of how justice is supposed to operate in like in the Western world, in a post-Enlightenment society. Um, now we are going back, uh, unfortunately, uh, President Biden and the Education Secretary have vowed to go back and have proposed doing just that. So the, the most, there's a lot of very significant changes, but 
you know, to get into the details, they are allowing once again, a single investigator model. So if you're accused of sexual misconduct, which could be everything from, you know, like actual forcible sexual assault to, to, to harassment, to speech, to just speech that wouldn't be criminal in any, any other context, um, it, it can now be once again, and this was the way it was under o Obama guidance, and now it'll be like this again, it can be adjudicated by essentially a single administrator who would, who would receive the complaint, who would choose who to interview about the complaint, which witnesses, which evidence to consider, and then they will compile a report. And then typically another administrator or panel of administrators will, will decide what to do with that report. That whole process could take place without the accused having any meaningful way to confront whatever witnesses or whatever evidence is against them. I mean, this was a key component of the of the DeVos Trump reforms was that just like in a criminal proceeding, you should have maybe it's not the exact same extent, but you have some right to to confront whoever is making accusations against you or to pose questions to them. So under the Trump guidance, it was clear it doesn't have to be you yourself confronting the, uh, the other person that is not called for, but your representative, your attorney has to be able to question them. And now that process, I mean, the, really the, requ the, the requirement for a hearing at, at all is gone, is gone under the new proposals. And that would be, uh, that could be very, very, very bad because I, you know, if you kind of believe in the, again, the principles of due process, Ad adversarial uh, hearings are, are are one of the best tools we have to arrive at the truth. Right. And so they're not just principles, they're constitutional requirements when right. you're talking about public universities. Um, and one of the most basic constitutional requirements is uh, notice and an opportunity to be heard. And uh, from from my research, one of the biggest problems with the way colleges were handling these types of, of disputes between students um, prior to the, the, the rules that were issued by Betsy DeVos and the Trump administration was that they were essentially putting out notices that said things like, you have been accused of sexual assault sometime last fall. And, you know, the, the student would sort of ask or have their lawyer call up the, the general counsel and say, well, can, can you be a little more specific? Um, and I had one lawyer tell me just the other day that, that when he did that for one client, the response of the Title IX investigator was, he knows what he did, right? And so then, you know, not the student doesn't have an opportunity to rebut because he doesn't know, um, you know, what exactly he's being accused of doing. Where did the wrongdoing take place? Many of these cases involved students who had been in a consensual relationship with each other, sometimes for many months, prior to a breakup. And so the student wants to know, well, on which of the occasions that we had sex is she accusing me of, of assaulting her, right? But, they, but the information wasn't forthcoming. Um, and that's the type of thing that the DeVos regulations really tried to put a stop to and said, no, you need specific, um, you need to give specific written notice. You need to take a written statement and provide written notice and then access to that the, the file um, to the students. Now it's gone back the other way. Tell us a little bit about what the new rules say with respect to to notice and, and being able to view the evidence. Yeah, this is a huge change. And again, very, very bad. Uh, there will no longer be a requirement that the accused students get 
access to, uh, I mean, a summary, the, the literal charges against them and then the evidence against them. Um, so previously, I have the exact wording here, uh, under the DeVos rules, both, both sides, accused and accusers, were entitled to inspect and review any evidence obtained as part of the investigation. Under the new rules, so that, that, that is very key language, under the new rules, the parties are only guaranteed a description of the relevant evidence. And this description need not be written down. Administrators can provide it orally or in writing. So orally could just be the investigator, again, this sole bureaucrat in charge of the entire proceeding could just tell you, here's what the accusation is, and they could get it wrong. They could misspeak. This has happened. I've covered Title IX cases where, where the, the accused has said, you know, what they told me, I was, I was accused of, they were not clear about it. It was not what I actually, then when I showed up for the hearing or the, or the later stage of the proceeding, it was something completely different. Wow. And it's your word against theirs because it's not written down. And that is just, I mean, that is just farcical. I mean, that just violates every basic proceeding, uh, basic idea of how fairness works. And by the way, you, you, you know, you're right. These are, these are legal requirements. The, when, when these Title IX proceedings are adjudicated in actual courts, when students have, have lost or been uh, the accused, you know, is ex suspended or expelled, you know, often forfeiting, um, I mean, be, you know, being tarred as a sexual abuser, not being able to finish their education, possibly being thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I, you know, I've heard this happens to medical students who've been hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, now have no way to finish their education. I mean, they're, they're it is, it is akin to his, it's not exactly the same exact thing as being put in prison, but it is so ruinous for your, for your life, your, your professional aspirations and your, uh, your economic standing. Uh, but when they have, you know, then sued the institutions for uh, arguing that the, the proceedings under which they were suspended or expelled violate, you know, violate the, the actual Bill of Rights, um, the courts have been very, have agreed very often they you know the the judges will actually go wait a minute you you were there was no hearing there's no you didn't know what the evidence was you had no way to confront your accusers they've laughed at that idea they have clearly established the circuit courts uh have repeatedly said no there really needs to be some kind of of uh confrontational ability in a hearing so to have the biden administration say no we just we're just not gonna do that no is uh, is really flying in the face of what actual judges have said about these proceedings. Um, could you walk us, because you just kind of alluded to one of the examples that you wrote about, could you walk us through some of the more egregious due process violations that you've found in your reporting? I mean, you know, things like Jennifer was referencing where, you know, the Title IX coordinator says, you know what you did. I mean, like, what are some of the more egregious due process violations that you've come across while reporting on this stuff? I mean, they're just... They're so incredible. And, and they, we, you know, we haven't had as much of them really in the last few years just because of the pandemic. Uh, and that's another thing that we haven't actually had time to test the new rules at all. Like if they were really bad and just like allowed for some huge number, a disproportionate number of new sexual uh, misconduct episodes, well, may, I guess maybe that would make some argument for, for revising them again, but that we've had no time for that to happen. But, but yeah, under the kind of Obama era or before they were reformed, you know, I, I covered cases um, of, of, so interestingly enough, you know, the theory of this being 
it is a violation of Title IX and, and the, the university is obligated to do something even if the supposed victim disagrees. So I have covered cases where the supposed victim, the person who was supposedly sexually a victim of sexual misconduct, um, it, it was a third party who reported it, who said, you know, it could be, oh, these two people are dating and I'm jealous or I don't like this person or I don't think they should be dating. And a third party reports. And then the university must, because it was the hair trigger for these investigations, had to investigate it. And they had interviewed it in some cases, again, the person who supposedly the victim and the victim said, what? <laughs> we're, 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 we're still in a relationship. We're like, we're still in a relationship, but there's nothing wrong. And, uh, and, and the university has, has followed through and like, that should be the end of it, right? If the supposed victim says, no, there is no, I, I don't wish to pursue, I'm not claiming anything, it should end. But it had to go forward. There was a, and th this was a football player at, I, I believe, a school in California. It might have been one of the UC schools. I can't remember exactly which one it was. Matt Bormeister was his name, uh, who, who went through this proceeding and was, and was uh, subjected to a, a, an extreme uh, sanction for this. Again, uh, against the wishes of his girlfriend. Um, so the involvement of third parties has been uh, a, a huge, a huge issue. Uh, the, the medical student I, I alluded to, it was a Michigan State student whose case I, I covered who uh, ended up with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt after he was expelled. You know, following a night where he had a, he had a bad, he had two, you know, bad hookups. Everyone got really, really drunk. Dude, at a wow, party. that's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> right, it ha you know, it happens. Um, and a lot, when you look carefully at these cases, you find all of them, virtually all of them involve intoxication with alcohol and drugs on both sides. And then you have people, uh, uh, the men and the women involved making choices that they probably would not have made if they were sober, et cetera. Like wrong, you know, wrongdoing, uh, moral wrongdoing, you know, whatever kind of blame you want to assign, fine. But it, it's not the same as saying it's a, it's sexual misconduct. Like who is consenting here? It gets into these very blurry, like, you know, well, what if the other person is also intoxicated and actually was the one who initiated the encounter, but if they're the first to report, there's such an advantage to reporting first. And that, that emerged in so many of the cases I covered, like, honestly, the advice would be if you wake up and you don't remember what happened, like you should be the first to the title nine office, just in case the other person files an investigation. I know that sounds perverse yeah. but but because if you're the second person then your claim is retaliation which is which is not allowed under their interpretation of title nine and that's without getting even into all of the cases that are mere speech where people were investigated for you know for for saying something of a sexual nature in a classroom or writing something of a sexual nature it could have been perfectly germane to a conversation of like you know sexual assault in shakespeare's works or something like that and if it, it offends someone, obviously this has happened to professors like, you know, Laura Kipnis, people, probably names that are familiar to your audience, but, um, but uh, it, it was so bad on so many fronts and I'm really worried we could go right back there. Yeah, could you follow up a little more on, on the, we haven't really gotten to the harassment, broadening of the definition of harassment. So what does this, the, this batch of, of uh, proposed Title IX regulations, how does that deal with uh, because, again, there's this story where prior to the Trump administration actually codifying and actually putting out, you know, APA regulations on this, we had universities that had expanded the definition of sexual harassment 
to include things that no sane person would ever call sexual harassment, like general statements about sex roles or controversial presentations, right? We even had, a, you know, um, students filing Title IX cases against Brett Kavanaugh, right? Like for essentially yeah. for, for um, being in, in the public eye in the maelstrom of his his confirmation. Um, so so where, where, does, where do these new regs go on the harassment thing? Right. So, so the previous uh, guidance, the guidance by the Obama administration, I believe their exact phrasing was any unwanted conduct of a sexual nature uh, that is severe or pervasive. Uh, and, and no, there was no uh, qualification that it be object objectively offensive or anything like that. So that, that could include any and did include anything. And you know what, even if it doesn't, People will file. People could file complaints, right? They could say, "Well, this is this is uncomfortable or offensive to me." And then you, you know, then you go through this administrative process where people don't even know what the evidence is against them, and it's, it's terrifying to the people accused of something. Uh, you know, even on paper, you were accused of sexual misconduct. What people assume that means, even if what it actually was, right, right, even if it, what it actually was, you used the wrong pronoun for someone, or you used the wrong, you used a gendered salutation. When that was contrary to their to their wow. desires, so then the the guidance under the rule under DeVos was going to be severe and pervasive and objectively offensive, except in the case of and I, I agree with maintaining this, except in the case of quid pro quo harassment, where so even under DeVos is saying you know a a a professor says you know you have to sleep with me or you have to give me a massage or something for a better grade. No, that is that is harassment. Like it doesn't have to be offensive to that. That is just harassment. That's, you know, that's in keeping with kind of a corporate definition of what harassment is. But for just comments, you know, you need it to be you need it to be like well outside the bounds, given that we're in a university setting where people really are supposed to ideally be free to express controversial and contrary ideas, you know, to arrive at some broader truth. You know, we're, we're adjudicating, we're arguing right now as a society about concepts relating to gender and sex and uh, and it's important to be especially you know in relevant in social sociology classrooms and gender studies classrooms and literature classrooms and we're just, we were closing the door to a lot of legitimate conversation that's something professors were finding professors were telling you they're telling me when i do reporting on this they're saying i'm afraid of my students i'm afraid i, I just can't address this subject law professors were saying they did not want to teach the law as it relates to sexual assault can you imagine what a setback for feminism I, this it's been a, a massive win for women for for uh, victims of domestic violence or just women who are victims of violence in general that we have attorneys and judges and juries and prosecutors who who understand you know the plight of women in that situation and and are take their claims seriously and listen to them not you know audit not automatic belief subjecting them obviously to due process but giving them hearing them and, and being knowledgeable about the statistics and what these things are like. Now, now law professors are saying, well, yeah, we can't teach this anymore because what if someone in the classroom uh, is, is offended or bothered or triggered by it, they could file a Title IX complaint. That was under the previous, that's how it was previously. And, uh, you know, we could be going right back there. Well, I think part of the problem is, is that generally in society, um, people define sexual harassment more broadly than the law defines it. So a lot of people don't realize, for example, that sexual harassment 
in and of itself doesn't violate federal law. It violates federal law when it amounts to sex discrimination, right? So it's, it's not the dirty joke that violates federal law. It's when conditions of employment or, or you know, conditions in a classroom become so unequal and so unfair to one sex or the other um, that it rises to the level of discrimination, that's when it violates the law. So, you know, a school, for example, that punishes, um, you know, uh, punishes girls who, who make crude remarks, but not boys, is committing discrimination, right? And the school itself right. has to commit the discrimination. Um, you know, a school that tolerates sort of uh, verbal, specific and targeted abuse of, of, of a person on the basis of their sex or of, of women generally, right? In a, in a particular course or through, across the campus, that institution is, is engaging in unlawful discrimination. It's not, the school isn't violating the law if at a frat party on a Saturday night, one boy makes a comment about a girl's physical appearance that somebody else finds offensive. That's, the school doesn't even know about that, right? They don't know about it until it's reported. And even if it is reported, that's not, the, the, the school doesn't have to necessarily do anything as long as they're treating everybody equally, right? I mean, they're not supposed yeah. to be policing speech. Yeah, yeah I mean, just, well, you're- Just, to add, just jump in before, I mean, that that's exactly what uh, the Davis against Monroe case Correct. is dealing with, right? You're, you're talking about the school repeatedly ignoring the, the like harassment of a particular female student and allowing a, a boy to basically follow her around um, you know, harassing her, sexually harassing her repeatedly. And there you really are dealing at some level, um, you know, whatever one thinks about that case, like really dealing with at some level, the school ignoring persistent sexual harassment to a point where maybe it is difficult for her to get her education. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it speaks to the, uh, the difficulty, I think, in even actually adjudicating some of these things under the framework of discrimination to women, I mean, look, I've covered cases where it was two men, right? And, and that's still being adjudicated by Title IX, but it's like, where is the, discrim the sex-based discrimination in this? We're kind of like, now we're just kind of like lumping everything together. Yeah, no, you know, it doesn't <laughs> exist in unless, yeah. unless the school is treating instances of complaints by men differently than complaints by women, right? It doesn't necessarily matter who um, the two people are in the relationship, what really matters is the sex of the complainant and, and how the school responds to it, right? That's, that's when Title IX is invoked. But, and of course, there are state laws that just prohibit sexual harassment outright. But when we're talking about federal civil rights law, we're really talking about discrimination, not you know, harassing language or speech. It can't, it can't be, it would violate the constitution. And yet, and, and, you know, the courts have been very clear about this, but, but, and, but despite the courts being clear about that, the culture at large and the universities in particular have just gone full force with this broad definition of what they say they have to prohibit and crack down on because of federal law. And it's just not true. And it's simply impossible to ignore the fact that this approach 
you know, you want to talk about discrimination. Um, from my reporting and from excellent reporting done by Emily Yaffe, um, it, it emerges, and there's just no way around it, that uh, far and away disproportionately um, men of color, black men, uh, immigrants uh, of color are, like, it's just, it's, tra it's apparently obvious, are far more likely to be accused and adjudicated and punished under the Title IX system, which, you know, let's say you're, you know, if you're a progressive, who is, or I mean, some conservatives and libertarians concerned about this too, right? About uh, unequal treatment in the criminal justice system. I mean, well, here you go. It's it, like it's it's uh, it's happening. It's happening in this you know quasi judicial proceeding that actually doesn't even come close to what the criminal justice standards are for protections for the accused. Um, and you know, you have you have all these cases where like you know, race is is very much in the conversation in if we're talking about discrimination and uh, and the sort of gender-based discrimination part of this uh you know in your in your kind of privilege hierarchies or whatever in this narrow context at least i don't know if this is generally the case for how you know various kind of claims of privilege or oppression are adjudicated but the the gender was going above race for sure in a very uh a very interesting way it was interesting to see who ended up caring about that <laughs> not, not not enough progressives in my view <laughs> no what do you think um, we're likely to see now that we're returning uh, under these new Title IX rules? I mean, where are these cases going to go in the actual courts, right? Because as you mentioned before, um, there, for the small percentage of people who have the resources and and the like, sort of willingness to continue to pursue this, a lot of them have found victory and settlement in actual federal courts mm -hmm. that have actual due process standards. I mean, is what do you expect um, is going to happen between the class? Because some of some of these regulations don't just contradict the sort of plain reading of the statute. They contradict Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, um, frankly, they, they, right. They force the universities and colleges to in, in between a rock and a hard place. Like they, they will run afoul of the federal government if they don't do this. But they know if they do, they, they eventually end up in court when they do do it. And it's, you know, it's a grueling uh, procedure. There's no guarantee of a success for people who, who are suspended or expelled or what have you. Um, they don't, you know, there's no, there's no way to make people entirely whole after being wrongly expelled for sexual misconduct. I, you're, there's no financial way to make you whole. There's no professional way. But, it, it, you know, if you look at the numbers, uh, Casey Johnson, uh, who's an, also an expert on this subject, who's a, a professor at Brooklyn College, uh, and closely follows these cases. He's compiled them. I believe the the most recent statistics I saw from him, and they, they're from a while ago now, but it's something like half of, somewhere in the neighborhood of half the lawsuits brought by students falsely, uh, or, or who say they've been wrongly accused because of a due process, or, or wrongly punished because of a due process violation. So they're winning somewhere in the ballpark of half the time. Maybe, maybe not winning completely, but winning in some sense which is a pretty stunning uh, failure rate, a, a pretty you know, stunning rejection of this approach at the court level. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is, you know, is going to be eventually something the Supreme Court weighs in on. I guess that would be helpful. Um, I mean, there's no real mystery for how a competent court will decide this. A competent court will say it is totally inappropriate, it is not acceptable to have a proceeding where there is no uh, no guarantee that the accused can can see the evidence. There's no guarantee that the accused can consult an attorney, and there's no guarantee that the accused can put 
their questions to the accuser. Uh, that like, it, it's just obvious that that's what that's what a competent court is going to decide. So you know, my guess is we're gonna we're gonna take a few steps back, and then maybe years from now we have we, we then we go back again when there's a, a robust of enough court presence to turn it. But in, in the meantime, we're just, we're going to see more of the kinds of cases we saw um, ten years ago, and uh, some you know some lives are are going to be ruined, and, and also you know like there are. To be clear, there are also cases where the accused is guilty, obviously, and this is an adversarial proceeding that the, you know, sometimes the other person does not actually want to pursue. What I liked so much about the DeVos um, uh, changes is that if both sides have some kind of dispute and they don't want an adversarial process, it's fine to have a restorative kind of, you know, maybe you make right to the other person in some way without involving a, a, a formal punishment um, uh, proceeding to go to go forward, and uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not totally clear uh, how much that if, if that is even if that is going to survive um, <laughs> under the new uh, the, the new regime. It might, but I think it's probably going to be more frowned upon than it was previously. It's funny because they want restorative justice proceedings for everything else, like wildly inappropriate behavior in fifth grades, and you know, <laughs> restorative justice so popular, but um, on the left, but not not in these, these cases that are genuinely, I mean, most of these cases are not at all what people are at least used to think when they think about sexual misconduct or sexual assault. They're exactly what you've described. They're gray area cases where both parties were intoxicated, um, you know, dealing with, with sort of miscommunication at worst, um, certainly not the kind of cases that I think people think about when they see that on somebody's record, they think you're a rapist. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, what, what is the business of a university in adjudicating interpersonal relationships to begin with? I mean, clearly this is a, a big overcorrection because there were many cases in the past in the, in the eighties and, 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 you know, before where, where, girls, young women did go to their universities and tell them that they had been assaulted and those cases were not taken seriously. I, I know many people that that happened to. Um, but I wonder whether the, you know, the bright line rule for the school shouldn't be that when you're alleging sexual assault, this is a crime. Um, the criminal justice system should play its part and Anytime a student is arrested for sexual assault, where the law enforcement authorities think that there's probable cause to believe that a crime was committed, in that case, the schools could have a bright line rule that that person is suspended, uh, you know, until the completion of the criminal process. And if they're found not guilty, they can come back. But, you know, as long as you're being prosecuted by the criminal justice system, you're not a student on this campus, right? That that to me, that would be fine. Um, and it would, it would be a bright line rule and there would be some negative results to that, to people who are ultimately found not guilty, but it would also, you know, prevent, you wouldn't be kicking people out on an allegation where there's no process in determining anything. I mean, at least then there's probable cause enough for a criminal case to go right. forward. An ancient allegation in some cases, to be clear, that's, you know, something I didn't bring up yet. But in, I think the average um, time between the incident and the and the and the filing of the complaint is like a year. Uh, these can involve right long-running relationships, bad breakup, 
year or two years later, the quote unquote victim, you know, files a complaint and says, right, on on two on two incident on two nights that we were together, it was you know I had withdrawn consent and or some or I had not given consent, right? The affirmative consent. I had not affirmatively said I consent. Um, and then, and then, you know, we were together the next night and the next night and the next night, those were all consensual and before it was consensual, but on you know, these two nights, two years ago, those were not consensual. A person could be, they could be expelled on that basis <laughs> under the, under the previous, um, the previous standards, you know, trying to, trying to recall, uh, the details of these cases. It's just, uh, it's just kind of staggering. So I, yeah, I'm very, and the, what you just said, is the impulse that so many people have. Even Bernie Sanders, I believe, said, you know, when it, years ago when he was first kind of asked about this issue, his gut impulse was to say, well, why are the universities handling this at all? Isn't this a matter for the police? Then he was set straight by kind of, you know, victims' rights activists within the Democratic Progressive Coalition who, you know, got him the right talking points on what you're actually supposed to say. But like his, that was his impulse. That is most people's impulse. It is but not a bad impulse. <laughs> that's the question I get, you know, when I, I get calls from parents whose whose kids are caught up in this and they say, well, if my child is being accused of assault, why aren't the police investigating? Or, you know, the police, the police aren't pursuing this. They don't think there's anything there. Why is the school still moving forward? And of course, the answer is, well, the school says they're they're not attempting to adjudicate um whether a crime has been committed, they're they're simply adjudicating whether misconduct has been committed, right? That's so so they think they have a right to move forward, um, but you're as you know as Inez said, essentially tarring somebody with with the label of rapist because that's right. what people think of. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's a sad state of affairs. What would you recommend to parents or students who find themselves caught up in this? I mean, I know you're you're not a lawyer, you're not giving legal advice, but do they have to wait until they're kicked out and then, you know, sue? Should they should they come to someone like you and have the egregiousness of their case exposed? I mean, what what do you recommend? Well, the first recommendation is look, be very, very, very careful of hookup culture on college campuses. And I, I don't say that from as a, I'm not a social conservative. I'm not a I'm, I'm not socially religious or anything. I'm saying for your own protection, um, be, you know, be develop healthy norms of drinking, be cognizant of other people's drinking. Someone who can seem sober to you, it, it can actually be very drunk. This is especially true of of women um, who who are they tend to be smaller than men uh, cannot do not uh, are get drunk much, intoxicated much more easily on some of these campuses the amount of alcohol again I I'm a drinker I'm not I'm not for prohibition at all in fact I think some it's of the prohibition norms are for reasons right, right. Right. cocktails yeah and in fact I think some of the prohibition uh, norms have have made some of this problem worse because a lot of the drinking takes place in a more binge drinking kind of scenarios you know in basements in at, at, at frat parties and it's, it's, it has to be illicit. It doesn't take place out in the open at bars because the kids are under 21, so they can't drink at bars. So there's a little bit less of, you know, the responsible people, you know, the bartender, the other people who, who know how to drink, hanging around and uh, kind of looking out for people. I actually think that's kind of made it worse. But, uh, but addi additionally, yeah, I mean, if, look, if this happens to you, um, you should absolutely consult uh, with an attorney you should, uh, you know, d despite what the new rules say, you need to get clear 
records of exactly what you are accused of. Um, you should you, you should absolutely talk to the media. You should sign you know sign a light on what they're going to do. Um, their you know secrecy is these administrative proceedings' best friend. But uh, but they, they, like there's just no guarantee. Like actual innocence is no guarantee of uh, of, of having a favorable outcome. Like it it is it is scary. It, it is unlikely. Look, it, I mean I you know. It, this does not happen to every single man on college campuses. This doesn't, you know, happen to everyone who has uh, an uncomfortable hookup. But you should just be—you should be very, 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 very careful. It, it, it and you know, I, I would also say I have three daughters, two of whom are in college. Um, I would also say if if you're if you're a victim, if you are assaulted, go to the police immediately. Mm -hmm. I don't rely on the universities because let's be honest, the universities don't have your best interests at heart, whether you're the victim or the accused. They really don't. They have one interest and that's covering their ass and, you know, having their statistics look right, that they did the right thing. So, you know, I would say if, if you, male or female, if you are assaulted on a college campus, you know, talk, go to the police, talk to your parents, talk to, you know, Another trusted adult, don't leave it in the hands of a Title IX officer because yeah. they're not out to help anyone except themselves. Yeah. Yeah. The, the advice I would add um, is there, there are groups out there that deal with us. There's FACE, um, which deals with exactly false accusations. And, and they, they are not only a resource for, you know, advice on how to deal with it, but also, you know, sort of support for what is is a really really difficult thing for especially particularly young men who are going through this i mean there have been suicides it's it's a really tragic and awful thing um to feel like your life is going to end in this way when you know that you didn't do anything um so there are groups out there for support and and also there are our law firms that deal exclusively with this kind yes. of, of litigation they're very experienced um in doing this so definitely I would add to all the the good advice that has been given. Try not to put yourself in these kinds of situations. But if 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 you are in that kind of situation, there are groups out there now. I think there's more awareness of this because of what happened ten years ago. Um, it kind of reached its peak on college campuses. There, there have been groups formed in response to it. There have been lawyers who are taking these kinds of cases, and and um, and and those interventions can matter earlier rather than later as well, right? Like a strongly worded letter from a lawyer is sometimes enough to get the school to maybe back off of something versus having to go through the federal court process afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I would second all that advice. Um, and it is just, it is not safe, even in a not, even if we're not set aside, you know, sexual assault, it is not safe for any, for, for 18 year old girls to drink, you know, five shots of fireball whiskey before they even set out for the night. That is not victim shaming or blaming. That's we, even apart from sexual assault. Like that is just, that is not safe behavior. Drink responsibly, have someone in your party, in your group who is not drinking, who can look out for people. The perspective of one sober person can be just hugely beneficial. You know, do use good judgment and train yourself to have good judgment. Um, because it's, you know, I, and I see, I see surveys of like how much these kids are drinking and it's just, you know, it, it makes us professional adult drinkers look like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. It's so dangerous. So, so please watch out for that. We, and I would say that, you know, even apart from any consideration of rape or sexual assault, it's, you just like 
drink responsibly and have, have a, surround yourself with responsible people, know the people you're, you know, you're with, know where you're going, know like what your plan is for the evening. I, this is just basic advice that can really save yourself a lot of woe. Agreed. Yeah, I think, uh, I think on that, that excellent advice, we're going to wrap up here. Um, so Robbie, thank you so much for, for coming on to discuss these new regulations in Title IX and, and the problems they've caused um, in, uh, in, in the past. So thanks again for coming on At The Bar. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. At The Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can also listen to it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else to get your podcasts. We hope you join us in a few weeks for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers. <laughs>